Well, uh, welcome everybody to today's uh, seminar on our um, James Mark 21st Century series on Getting to Zero. It's my very great pleasure today to introduce to you Sir Malcolm Rifkins, um, who is joining us to speak on the topic of eliminating nuclear weapons. Uh, Sir Malcolm is, of course, one of the leading lights of the Global Zero campaign, which has been one of the um, inspirations for this seminar series um, uh, in terms of the work that it's done on proposing and working towards the elimination entirely from the world of uh, nuclear weapons. And that's very much going to be the focus of Sir Malcolm's speech today. Um, before I introduce Sir Malcolm, though, I'd just like to make a few announcements. Um, next week uh, for the seminar, we will be moving off the topic of nuclear disarmament and onto the topic of um, poverty reduction. We will have Professor Tony Venables from uh, the University of Oxford, um, the Economics Department, who will be speaking on bottom billion or bottom zero, policies for international poverty reduction. Um, I'd also like to draw to your attention uh, some additional <coughs> events um, that are coming up during the course of the term. On the 4th of November, uh, ELAC will be hosting <coughs> Martin Griffiths for a special lecture on the topic of private diplomacy, public peace. Uh, now, Martin is the director of the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva, which is a group that works towards um, private diplomatic solutions of global conflicts. And this is the first in a series of special events um, that we're hoping to hold once a term during the course of this year that we hope will, uh, will culminate in a, in a very, very special um, uh, presentation uh, in, the, in the third term, but we'll, we'll update you on that as we, uh, as we know more. So I'd encourage you to keep your diary free for that. That's the 4th of November at quarter past five here at the 21st Century School. Uh, now, you'll also see over on the table there some literature from the Global Zero campaign, um, and uh, I very much encourage you to, to look at that. Uh, there is some information on becoming a Global Zero volunteer, and we also have some information on um, uh, a, um, a youth, I'm not sure exactly what the term for it is, but a, uh, um, a youth uh, a colloquium that's going to be held in Paris in February of next year, and if anyone is interested, they are looking for two student uh, applicants from the UK to represent the UK at that event. It looks like a really exciting event. So if you are interested in that, do go and have a look at the literature there and sign up. Now I also have, for Global Zero, some, uh, some sign-up sheets. If you're interested in learning more about Global Zero or in signing the declaration, I would encourage you to sign that sheet. Uh, and put your email on it, and then if you can pass the sheets forward to, to Lawrence Lusgarten, who's here, he'll collect them and just hold on to them uh, until, the end of the, until the end of the seminar. Good, well having uh, got through all of that um, to the main event of the day, um, Malcolm Rifkins uh, is currently the Conservative member for Kensington and Chelsea, which I say must be one of the more pleasant uh, and, uh, and congenial seats in, in the House. Um, but he's, of course, best known for his um, long and very distinguished career as a minister during the governments of Margaret, Margaret Thatcher and John Major. Um, he is, I understand, one of only four ministers who served continuously through the 18 years of those two governments. Uh, he began his ministerial career as uh, Minister of State for Europe, where one of his responsibilities uh, was um, overseeing relations with the then Soviet Union. He then proceeded to be Secretary of State for Scotland, uh, and from there he became Secretary of State for Transport, 
1992, he became Secretary of uh, State for Defence. And in 1995, he then moved to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, uh, where he held the position of Foreign Secretary for two years until 1997. He is extraordinarily uh, well qualified to speak on today's uh, topic, and I'd like you all to welcome um, Samantha McKenna. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for that uh, very friendly uh, introduction. Uh, President Lyndon Johnson was once introduced in that way. He said, that is the sort of introduction which my father would have enjoyed and my mother would have believed. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm grateful to you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be in Oxford in, in what was once the old Indian Institute. Uh, this clearly must reflect that period in its uh, history. And as I looked at this wonderful, beautifully carved door, I remembered my time in the Foreign Office. Uh, in the, the Foreign Office was built, of course, in the 19th century, and at the time when India was part of the British Empire, and there was a Secretary of State for India. And what is extraordinary about his room, which is about half the size of this one, the room that was used by him, is it has two identical doors, rather like that, from the same hall into the same room. Uh, two identical, not one, but two. And uh, you may ask, why two? And I asked, why two? And I told a very simple explanation, uh, that during the days of the Raj, they had many visitors from India, and if, if on occasion they might have not one, but two Maharajas visiting simultaneously, there could have been a great conflict of uh, protocol as to who would come in first. And uh, but to avoid this problem, they thought they better have two doors. Uh, what happened when there were three Maharajas, I was never informed, but uh, that be that uh, as, it, as it may. Now, what I would like to do today is uh, share with you some thoughts on the issue of nuclear weapons. But let me begin by stating the obvious. Here am I, a former Minister of Defence and a former Foreign Minister in a right-wing Conservative government uh, that uh, supported and continues to support uh, Britain's nuclear deterrent, and yet here I'm also uh, associating with the Global Zero campaign. And it's a good starting point because of course, for very many years, the last 60 years, there have been many campaigns for nuclear disarmament, many of which included calls for unilateral disarmament by the United Kingdom or other countries. These campaigns, well, I didn't agree with them, I still didn't agree with them, but they were perfectly respectable campaigns and a valid part of a public debate in this country and in other countries. But there has been a change, and it's a very significant change. And I will first mention what that change is and then try and offer some reasons for it. The, the change is that uh, what we see today is a whole range of people, and I hope you will forgive me if I say they're not the usual suspects, uh, a large number of people, former ministers of defense, generals, admirals, field marshals, ambassadors, uh, most of whom, if not all of whom, were part of the defense of this country and of other Western countries, which included nuclear weapons, who are now saying we need to work very hard for change, and for change of a, a radical kind. In some ways it began rather improbably with Henry Kissinger, <coughs> uh, that a couple of years ago, Dr. Kissinger, along with three other prominent Americans, Bill Perry, a former American Defense Secretary, George Shultz, a former Secretary of State, and Sam Nunn, a leading uh, senator, published a, an article in the American media uh, which said there are far too many nuclear weapons in the world. We need to work for far fewer. And we must not exclude the possibility of that leading one day to their ultimate uh, disappearance. And that was followed in similar initiatives. I was involved in a similar initiative in this country with 
Douglas Hurd, uh, George Robertson, former Secretary General of NATO, and David Owen. Uh, similar initiative in Germany, and only last week, uh, one in France by senior French uh, politicians. So why has this happened? Why is it that somebody like Henry Kissinger, the arch, uh, arch exponent of realpolitik, uh, should be associating himself with these ideas? Uh, in a sense, it is exactly what realpolitik is about. Realpolitik means you don't uh, base your policy on theoretical ideas or ideological uh, concepts, you look at the world as it is, and you decide in a real sense, is the strategy, is the policy that you are pursuing or have been pursuing, is it still the right one for the world in which you now are and are likely to be in the years to come? And if the world has changed in a significant way, uh, then it would be very foolish for any politician or statesman or anyone interested in these matters uh, not to recognize that fact. So it's partly, of course, the end of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War was itself the defining uh, uh, relationship uh, of the first 50 years after 1945. But associated with the end of the Cold War, and subsequent to it, we have also had, for the first time, serious proliferation of nuclear weapons with India and Pakistan, uh, with Israel, uh, and with the possibilities of North Korea and Iran, and possibly other countries as well. We've also had the extraordinary growth in nuclear energy. And although nuclear energy, civil use of nuclear power, is not in itself a political threat, it obviously involves the creation of very large amounts of fissile material, uh, which in the right circumstances can be used uh, for military purposes or developed in order to achieve that use. And that is hugely greater a factor than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. There's also a third factor, which I'll come to in more detail later in my remarks, which is the extent to which the argument that was, in my view, hugely valid during the Cold War, that the nuclear balance between the Soviet Union and the West not only prevented us being attacked with the use of nuclear weapons, but also prevented a third world war involving only conventional weapons breaking out again. It's always worth remembering. The First World War didn't require nuclear weapons. The Second World War, to the very last few days, didn't involve nuclear weapons. <coughs> so part of the rationale for nuclear weapons during the Cold War period was not just to prevent a nuclear war through deterrence, but to prevent any war breaking out in the continent that had seen the birth of the First and Second World War. Now I'll come back to that argument, because it still has some resonance in the, the current debate. Let's also remember that the years, although we have nuclear weapons today in substantial numbers, the years since the end of the Cold War, since the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89, have not been uh, wasted years in the absolute sense. Uh, at its peak, the number of nuclear warheads that existed in the world was approximately some 65,000. 65,000 nuclear warheads. At the end of the Cold War, that had already come down through various treaties to some 48,000. Since the end of the Cold War, it has come down dramatically to 23,000, which is roughly where we are today, 23,000 nuclear warheads. But in the last 10 years, it's stalled. And not very much has happened for a number of political and other uh, reasons. The question of also proliferation has gone in both directions. Because I've mentioned the countries that have become nuclear weapon states, actually far fewer than was predicted 20 years ago. But we're not necessarily at the end of that process. But there's also some, been some major successes. When the Soviet Union <coughs> collapsed 
Three of its successive states, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Belarus, had large numbers of nuclear weapons on their territory. They could have held on to them, and by, as a result, become nuclear powers. By successful negotiation and in various complex, difficult ways, each of these three countries agreed to hand over their nuclear weapons. They are not nuclear weapon states and do not, like, do not seem likely to go that direction. But also South Africa did, during the apartheid period, acquire a small number of nuclear weapons. That no longer exists. Libya was obviously trying to go that direction and has decided not to do so. So there have been big achievements, uh, but we still are left with the fact that today there are some 23,000 nuclear warheads. That is one heck of a lot. 95% of them are either the United States or Russia. Uh, the remainder are spread between a number of countries, relatively, relatively small in number, though obviously their destructive power remains very, very high. There have been a number of reasons why one could say there is a greater urgency today to deal with this issue than for some time. During the Cold War, it wasn't just a coincidence, the, the, the political fact is that the nuclear weapon states were also the two sides of the Cold War. The Soviet Union and China on the one hand, the United States, Britain and France on the other. No other countries had nuclear weapons. And therefore, because it was all tied up with the Cold War, because of the determination, not just of the West, but also of the Soviets, to avoid war if possible. Uh, there was a discipline, there was a mutual interest, and there was quite a developed way of it trying to ensure that the war, nuclear war in particular, could not break out by accident. People quite often forget how the Cuban Missile Crisis could easily have developed into something even uh, more devastating uh, and did not uh, do so. So that is quite a serious uh, matter. Now, let me move on to where we are now and where we might be moving towards. You will be familiar with the initiative launched by President Obama after he became President of the United States, uh, saying that the United States and Russia, which I repeat had 95% of all nuclear weapons, uh, have to now, in his view, and the Russians have acknowledged this, have a serious negotiation about a dramatic uh, reduction in the current numbers, particularly of strategic nuclear warheads, of which they each have round about 5,000. Uh, the reality is that you cannot get any progress on global nuclear weapons issues unless the United States and Russia are part of it and also make the, the, the lead actions in, in order to achieve uh, reduction. Although it is not going to be easy, at the end of the day, I don't have any serious doubts that the United States and Russia will make real progress in a relatively finite period of time. They're supposed to be signing a, a document by December of this year. That, I think, is uh, simply inconceivable. But that's not the point. Uh, I think they will make real progress, and I think they will do so in quite a substantial uh, way because it doesn't open up too many of the most fundamental problems. If they both have 5,000 strategic nuclear warheads at the moment, the reality is they could reduce to 3,000 or 2,000 or 1,500 without making any fundamental change, either to their overall military capability 
or indeed to their relative power, each compared to the other. If you each have 2,000 nuclear warheads, which can destroy the world many times over, then the fact that you no longer have 5,000 is not a, a profound difference to your overall military or political uh, power. Uh, and so the process that the United States and Russia can be slowly entering into can go on for quite a period of time, producing what on the face of it will be serious results with major reductions in the world's nuclear weapon capability without changing their relative position either towards each other or the huge lead they have compared to any other countries in the world in regard to their military capability. If, however, the Americans and the Russians ever got down from 5,000 strategic warheads each to, let us say, two or 300, four or 500, you then begin to get very, very close indeed to China you're not that far from France or the United Kingdom. And that fundamentally changes the relative power of these two countries in a profound way. So that is part of the issue that will have to be borne in mind. I have no doubt that if we are ever in the game uh, over the next few years of seeing nuclear weapons reduced in that sort of dramatic way, if that is seen to be a practical proposition, then obviously it can only be taken further if uh, France, Britain, <coughs> China, as well as India and Pakistan are part of that process. Uh, this is not a debate or a discussion about unilateral disarmament. Uh, unilateral disarmament, in my judgment, is as improbable as well as undesirable today as it was during the great heyday of CND in the 1960s or 70s. I do not think it's on anyone's agenda. What we're talking about, if it's going to happen, it has to be multilateral disarmament, and I will come back to some of the criteria for that in a few moments. Now, let me share with you for the moment a few thoughts about not just reducing, but actually eliminating nuclear weapons. Is that a complete pie in the sky? Is that a completely um, uh, visionary objective, but it's one that cannot be realized? And because I am a former Minister of Defense and Foreign Minister, and because I have been involved, for better or for worse, uh, with these matters, then I'm going to present to you not just what may or may not be desirable, but I'm going to share with you my judgment of the practical hurdles that need to be overcome. Not because I say they're impossible, not because they make it inconceivable that we could ever succeed, but because they are real issues. And they're real issues not just for politicians, they're real issues for citizens, they're real issues for people interested in peace, not just peace from nuclear weapons, but peace from war, uh, and let us share some thoughts on that. The starting point has to be that there is a crucial difference, qualitatively, not just quantitatively, between on the one hand getting from a thousand to a hundred, and getting from a hundred to zero. Let me explain what I mean. Similar to the point I made a few moments ago, as between America and Russia, but it applies to all the other nuclear weapon states as well. Countries have nuclear weapons for a reason. Uh, in the case of India and Pakistan, it's, uh, and China, it's been because of the relative relationships between these two countries and fear of possible attack and, and matters of that kind. So they're not going to give them up just on a theoretical proposition. And they're certainly not going to give them up unless there is absolute certainty, or absolute maybe too grand a title, 99% certainty 
that the other side is not going to cheat. Uh, you cannot risk uh, eliminating your nuclear weapons on the promise that others will do so unless you can be reasonably satisfied they can be held to that promise. So one crucial ingredient is verification and transparency. You have to have systems that can ensure that a country that has promised either to reduce or ultimately to eliminate its nuclear weapons is actually carrying out its commitment. And also, if having carried it out, it sought to reverse that process, because you can't abolish the knowledge of how to make nuclear weapons. And countries that have had them in the past, although it would take time, would certainly not have lost the ability to recreate a nuclear weapon. So you have to have systems that not only monitor the initial observance of your commitments, but mean that they cannot be subsequently reversed. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I, as I understand it, it has become increasingly uh, practical to contemplate that we either are or are approaching the stage when these sort of levels of transparency and verification will be a, a, a available. Already, uh, in terms of, for example, nuclear testing, um, when North Korea tested a relatively small nuclear device, devices 6,000 miles away were able to pick it up, although it was even smaller than the um, bombs used at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. So that's in regard to testing, of course, that's not the only issue, but I use that simply as an example. But something, what we will have to be sure of is that verification and transparency is a very uh, Substantial. I said that there was a qualitative difference between going down from a thousand to a hundred and from a hundred or fifty to, to zero. And when you think about it, it's quite obvious. Uh, if you've gone from a hundred to fifty, and the other side had as well, your point I made earlier is valid. You're, the relative position between the two of you is the same. You are each equally able to defend yourselves and deter attack. Because even with fifty nuclear warheads or 20 nuclear warheads or 10 nuclear warheads, uh, you can wreak havoc if that is required. However, there's two qualifications to that. Uh, first of all, a fundamental part of nuclear deterrence theory is the ability to impress upon a potential enemy that they mustn't try to launch a surprise attack on you because they would not be able to eliminate all your nuclear capabilities and you would have the power to retaliate, even if you had been severely devastated in the, in the meantime. One of the main justifications for the Trident system is because it is submarine-based, and there's a submarine somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, <coughs> no one knows where. Even if the United Kingdom was attacked in a nuclear way, there is no way an aggressor could eliminate our capability to respond, and therefore deterrence is that much more credible than it would otherwise be. Now, the fewer nuclear weapons you have, the more difficult it will be to impress upon an enemy who still has nuclear weapons that you could respond if you were attacked uh, and could not be eliminated in a first strike. So that is a factor. But there is a second factor as well, and that is once you get down to, let's say, a tiny handful of nuclear weapons, let's say over the next 20, 30 years, we're able to get down to where countries with nuclear weapons have only three or four each then the need for verification and transparency becomes even stronger. If you have one nuclear weapon, but your enemy has none, that is hugely more threatening than if you have three and he has two. 
Uh, if a country is cheating at the level of 100, and you've got 100 and they've got 90, does it make that much difference? No, it probably doesn't. But when you're at the level of only one or two each, and you're contemplating getting rid of your last nuclear weapon, then if he retains one, uh, the whole deal's off. Remember that wonderful line in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And that is true in the sphere as well. Now, many of you may have no sympathy for nuclear weapons at all. That's not the point I'm trying, I'm not trying to influence you in that respect. I'm simply saying that those who have responsibility for the defense of their countries and who have long believed that nuclear weapons is part of that uh, requirement uh, are not going to surrender them in their entirety unless they are at the very least satisfied that any potential aggressor uh, will do so as well and be able to be held uh, to that. Now, I mentioned earlier that one of the big issues that have changed since the end of the Cold War, which influences someone like myself and many likely to, uh, to, to support serious efforts to reduce nuclear weapons, uh, is that the world is different. Let me just address this question of conventional war. Because I, and I touched on it earlier in my remarks. During the Cold War, those of us who defended the possession of nuclear weapons by Western countries, faced with the Soviet Union and the Cold War uh, uh, confrontation, uh, were not just trying to prevent a nuclear attack, but to prevent a third world war in Europe, which could have, even without nuclear weapons, killed, as the first two wars did, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people. Now, if that argument was valid then, why is it not valid today? Uh, because you know, we know that wars didn't begin with nuclear weapons. Indeed, it's the other way around. Since nuclear weapons have been available, at least in Europe, we have not had war. We've had a longer period of peace for most of Europe, not all of it, but for the vast portion of Europeans who've lived with more peace in the last 60 years uh, than at any time in the last 300 years, or even longer. Uh, now, it's a question of personal judgment, how, what contribution nuclear weapons made towards that. But uh, there is obviously, at the very least, a serious risk if you uh, cease your nuclear protection, are you increasing, if not the prospect of nuclear war, are you increasing the prospect of a resurgence of conventional war between the countries of Europe or some of the great powers or, or what have you? Now, these are not frivolous arguments. They're not arguments that are just used in order to try and end the debate. They're arguments that have to be addressed in a mature way because there is at least some truth in them, I think, and I would have thought most people would acknowledge. There is some truth in that question what are the risks of a resurgence of conventional conflict if we get rid of nuclear weapons? Take India and Pakistan, for example. Uh, India and Pakistan have already had, since uh, their independence in 1948, several wars. Not massive wars, but serious wars on their borders with lots of people killed or injured. It happens to be the case that since both became nuclear powers, there have been no wars between those two countries. And it is reasonable to assume, at least uh, to some extent, it has been a realization that even a limited conventional border conflict could escalate in an unpredicted or uncontrollable way to a nuclear exchange. It is reasonable to assume, at least to some extent, that has been a discipline, a constraint, that would otherwise not have been so uh, much at the time. Faced with that kind of consideration, why do we nevertheless still say it is very desirable to see this massive reduction in nuclear weapons, and if possible, leading towards zero. 
It's not because the argument to, that you need to revenge conventional war is foolish or wrong. It is that it's of a different scale than it was during the Cold War. The balance of the argument has changed. And let me explain why I believe that to be the case. During the Cold War, if, as a result of not having nuclear weapons, war had broken out again in Europe by a Russian attack on, Soviet attack on Western Europe or whatever, and a third world war had begun, then it would be literally a world war. We were trying to prevent not just a war between individual countries, but a global war, which would result in huge numbers of fatalities and casualties. Since the end of the Cold War, there has not been, there is not today, and is unlikely to be in the foreseeable future, any risk of a global war breaking out in the sense that we understood by either the First or the Second World War. The wars that transcend continents which involve countries around the world and which effectively are world wars. Today, if there are conflicts which will lead to war, including between the some of these countries that are nuclear weapon states, they would be pretty horrible for the people concerned. They would involve loss of, cash uh, loss of lives, perhaps on a large scale, but they wouldn't be anything remotely comparable to the consequences of a world war. If India and Pakistan go to war with each other, in a conventional way, there may be tens of thousands of people killed. If Israel and its Arab neighbors go to war, uh, then, in a conventional way, could be huge loss of life and major geopolitical consequences. But it's not going to be a world war as a consequence. And therefore, if that is a fair comment, then one has to acknowledge, I think one has to acknowledge, that the risks involved in having nuclear weapons, the amount of risk you are prepared to accept, in my view, is considerably greater when you're trying to avoid the risk of a world war, conventional or otherwise, then if the benefit you achieve from these risks is re reducing the likelihood of regional conflicts of the kind that I have described. That may not be as acceptable in Delhi or Islamabad and Tel Aviv or in other countries as it may be in London, but I think it's still a point that has some uh, validity. The additional factor, of course, is that we also have the terrorist dimension, the rogue state dimension, the question that nuclear weapons or fissile material is not just to be found in those countries that are responsible states, uh, but could be direct or indirect in the hands of non-state aggressors of a kind that we have become increasingly uh, familiar with and which were not relevant during the period of the Cold War. So, I want to allow maximum time for questions, so I'm now going to draw my remarks to a close so we can move to a discussion phase. What conclusions do I draw from not only where we are, but my analysis of the problems as well as the opportunities that exist at the present time? And I would share with you briefly five conclusions. Uh, first of all, that whatever your views on nuclear weapons, whether you support them, whether you oppose them, whether you believe they were justified or whatever, I think it is undeniable there are just far too many nuclear weapons in the world today for any conceivable political or military objective. Uh, even if you start and still hold the proposition that nuclear weapons are an essential part of the 
for the defense, at least, of a number of countries, there cannot be, in my view, any need for 23,000 of them, given that each one of them has a massive destructive power. So the desirability of a sustained, serious, and deliberate effort to see, first with the United States and with uh, Russia, because they have most of those at the present time, but also, in due course, if that is successful, leading to other countries as well. That, I think, is irrefutable. The second conclusion is that unless we make progress of that kind and demonstrate to the rest of the world our determination to do all within our power to do so, there has to be a real increased risk of the non-proliferation treaty not being renewed or even more likely just slowly eroding and breaking down in the face of the pressures that are upon it. I've already mentioned Iran and North Korea. I'm happy to do so in discussion. These are crucially important points. Uh, in terms of the global situation, uh, obviously a world in which serious efforts were being made by the nuclear weapon states to reduce their nuclear weapons and move towards uh, some more radical change uh, it wouldn't guarantee the North Koreans or the Iranians responding. They're not that sort of people, as far as we can tell. But it would certainly make it much more difficult for them uh, if they do have these nuclear weapon aspirations to continue with that. And it would also make it easier to get the degree of international support for the diplomatic or other pressure that might need to be put upon them uh, if uh, the countries that are not nuclear weapon states uh, saw that their views and those of the nuclear weapons powers were coming closer together. So the second conclusion is that non-proliferation, which is in all our interests, will certainly be assisted if progress of a substantive kind can be made on nuclear weapons issues. The third conclusion that I come to, as one I mentioned earlier, is beyond a no doubt this has to be, if it's going to work, a multilateral process, not a unilateral one. You may wish to ask me my views on Trident and, and what should happen in the case of the United Kingdom, I can give you thoughts on that. But at the end of the day, the United Kingdom, in my judgment, should not and will not give up its nuclear weapons, except in the context that that is happening multilaterally. The United Kingdom needs to be part of that process, but it should not be expected to act in some unilateral way that wouldn't impress anyone and have little benefit to the wider world. Fourthly, uh, the fourth conclusion is the need for any progress in this field for a further significant enhancement of verification and transparency uh, methods so that we can be sure that those who give commitments in the sphere honor them, do not cheat, and if they seem to be acting in a way inconsistent with their obligation, that is quickly identified. And my final point is, is one in regard to timescale. Uh, this is not a process which, even if it is hugely successful, is going to be concluded in the next five, ten years. And one shouldn't expect it. Uh, the, the difficulties are too substantial. The technical problems that still have to be addressed, the need to carry consent, because the public in many of the nuclear weapon states have for 60 years, the majority, not by any means everyone, have acknowledged and accepted that nuclear weapons are part of their defense. It's not just President Obama who rules in the United States. Congress has to be persuaded. Any international treaty will need to be ratified by the Senate, a Senate which hasn't even yet ratified the Comprehensive Test Act. Uh, and American public opinion uh, is a, a significant dimension. But not just American. Think also in Russia. 
Uh, Russia, of course, is hugely weaker today than it was during the Cold War. During the Cold War, it was one of the two world superpowers. Today, there only is one superpower, that's the United States. And from a Russian perspective, from Mr. Putin's perspective, it is his nuclear weapons that actually still give him some pretense to being, and not just a pretense, some substance, to being considered a world power. Russia was to entirely remove its nuclear weapons at a time when the United States' conventional strength is so much greater than any other country in the world, including Russia's, and is getting wider because of technological advance of conventional weapons, uh, than the Russians' relative power compared to the United States. That would be seen to deteriorate. So beyond no illusions, progress is not going to happen overnight. This is going to take I would have thought at the very least some 20 to 30 years to reach the uh, ultimate objective. And what about that ultimate objective? Uh, if you ask me, will we one day achieve uh, in our lifetime, the lifetime of anybody here, uh, a complete elimination of nuclear weapons, I don't know. That would be foolish to pretend otherwise. Uh, I hope it's possible. I think it's well worth working towards. I think it's well worth working towards for two reasons. First of all, because unless you work towards it, it certainly won't happen. That we can be sure of. But secondly, even if it didn't happen, even if we couldn't get to absolute zero, but if we reduce the number of nuclear weapons in the world from the 23,000 that exist at the moment, let us say to 5,000 or to 1,000, that would be huge progress. It would not just be symbolic progress. It would actually also be substantive because it would have helped enormously in the non-proliferation process of persuading other countries not to go the nuclear route. It would also reduce dramatically the amount of fissile material that could go missing and end up in terrorist hands or rogue states' hands or other improper, uh, sinister purposes. And it would be part of a process which was beneficial in itself. So uh, I think it doesn't in a sense matter whether you believe that we must get to zero, or whether you would settle at a fraction of what exists at the moment. In either case, the strategy remains much the same, and the benefits that would be available to the world would be much the same. And you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, in your opening remarks, the Global Zero Campaign, and the Global Zero Campaign does include people across the spectrum. It includes those who are totally committed to zero, <coughs> and who would personally settle for nothing less. But it also includes quite a lot of us uh, who hope that zero may be attainable, um, have some serious doubts as to whether it is likely within any foreseeable timescale, but nevertheless can share the strategy that will hopefully see a massive reduction in nuclear weapons for the kind of reasons that I have mentioned. Um, this doesn't depend on whether you're left-wing or right-wing, Labour conservative, or what your political uh, allegiance might be, because nuclear weapons by their very nature, like any weapon, do not respect uh, political uh, ideology or, or, or preferences. But I think we are living in a very different period, when it is much more <coughs> possible to envisage the kind of massive changes in nuclear weapons uh, armories uh, than would have been possible in any previous uh, time. <coughs> Victor Hugo once remarked, uh, more powerful than the march of mighty armies is an idea whose time has come. Uh, and without wishing to exaggerate it too much, 
Uh, I think that may be a fair comment to move on.